if I can if I can shorthand what we were saying about the marriage of social liberalism and economic liberalism, is that a culture of duty was lost and a culture of rights was born. And I think the right will start to get its bearings back when it is talking more about people's duties and less about people's rights. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show Greg Connolly, who is a barrister based in Sydney. He has a broad public law and commercial law practice, including constitutional law, energy and resources law, and admiralty and shipping law. In particular, he has advised the Australian government on national security law and public law matters. He also lectures in constitutional law and serves part-time as a senior member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal of the Commonwealth of Australia. Gray served previously as a Navy Naval Intelligence Officer in the Royal Australian Navy in places such as the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean, the Arabian Sea, the Gulf of Oman, the Persian Gulf, East Timor, and the Middle East. It's just about every sea you could go to almost, including service in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Gray writes on what interests him at his blog, Strategy Council, and in various publications. And you should check him out on Twitter, where his handle is at Gray Connolly. Before we dive into our conversation, please note that Gray's opinions are his opinions only and not those of any Australian government entity. Gray, it's fantastic to be talking to him. Thank you for having me on The Political Animals. Okay, Gray, you and I are going to have a deep dive conversation on conservatism in Australia, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And unfortunately, there is a bit of ugly. I think we may both <laughs> agree. But as a way into this conversation, because conservatism means many different things to different people, both in and outside of the tribe, so to speak, uh, what do you you mean and what should listeners understand when you use the term conservative to describe yourself? Um, well, I take the view that conservatism and to be a conservative is about two things. One is I think there is a certain doctrine of belief of being a conservative. There are things that you do believe in. So there are certain absolutes that you believe in, particularly going around, say, in the political context, ideas of legitimacy. And, and and this is connected very closely to rule of law ideas. So there is that. And it's also attached to institutions as well. Certain institutions are important in and of themselves, quite apart from what they do, because they are either custodians of some inheritance or they're breaks on bad things happening in a society. So there is that. But there is also an idea of conservatism as an attitude. It's a certain scepticism of change, particularly ill-thought-out change. Uh, there's also a scepticism of larger programs than have been uh, perhaps ill thought out. And there's also a desire to conserve what you think is good, uh, be it the natural family, uh, be it the society itself and the sense of the polity as a community. And, and the community itself is worth conserving, the idea that we're all in a sort of partnership together. And so to some degree, conservatism is at odds with, say, liberalism and particularly libertarianism. So it is against the idea of, say, sovereign individuals, 
it's it really is. I, I realize this will upset a lot of people, but if you really believe in sovereign individuals and the ultimate expression of individual rights, then you are to some degree or another a liberal. You're not a conservative because conservatism has never ever been an absolutist about individualism. It's been absolutist about other things, but it hasn't been absolutist about individualism. Does does that answer your question? Uh, sure does, and I I can sign up to pretty much all of that. Let me let me add a few little textures, if you like, uh, on this canvas that we're we're painting on. It'd be interesting interesting to hear your response to a couple of other dimensions, if if you like. Uh, noting that uh, that I actually actually agree with all of that, and I want to want to come on my own to this point about you called it legitimacy. And the term I want to inject is authority because I because I think actually conservatism has a strong theory and understanding of authority, which begins with parental authority because we're all born into authority. This is the myth of the left that we're, you know, the, the old Rousseauan nonsense that, you know, we're somehow born free as a dependent infant that would die without the absolute authority of and care of parents. But I get ahead of myself. I, that On that change point, I've... I've sometimes argued that conservatism, and perhaps I'm trying to be a bit uh, provocative and subversive in the current context because I think there's lots of conservative heresies, so to speak. I think you could say conservatism is actually a philosophy of change. That is, it's a particular um, approach to change that is distinct from uh, attitudes to change on the left, which tend to be more radical, dismissive of of tradition, you know, willing to mess around with institutions, including abolishing whole institutions with little thought. And so it's not that the conservative is averse to change because I think in the conservative intellectual tradition, sometimes injustice can become institutionalized and you have to be careful of that. And sometimes for the sake of justice, you do have to embark on reform, but you are very, very cautious and you set a much higher threshold for substantiating the need to change, particularly when it comes to institutions and cultural traditions, because they're really easy to get rid of. And they take a long time through organic generational evolution to develop. And so I think this is off the the reason why I like to highlight this is because conservatives are often attacked for being opposed to all change. But I don't think that's actually it. It's about having a very prudent approach to change, which does mean often opposing (laughs) some of the crazy proposals we get these days. But it's not against all change per se because technology develops, economies evolve and develop, our understanding develops. You cannot, there's no such thing as a static society. And I already made that kind of authority point, but I think, and just building on what you said, because I I totally agree, and this is where... You and I perhaps are <laughs> starting to be part of a, a sort of dwindling remnant as conservatism does go, I think, far more libertarian where the sort of sovereign self and the a sort of rights-based culture around individualism. I think the genius of conservatism is that it balances freedom and authority. So it thinks that freedom is actually important, individual in freedoms for society, but only within a sort of authority structure where you recognize that we are all under authority to some extent. For me, this starts with my Christian faith. So if you believe in God, then you have to believe in authority. Otherwise, why are you worshiping a transcendent creator? And so the concept of authority should be pretty natural, but I cannot envisage a society that can function on 
pure individual liberty alone without authority structures in the family, in institutions, and all the way up to that big bad thing that conservatives or people on the right now hate the government. Yeah, I, I've always had a trouble with the idea of, if I can put it in a nutshell, the the idea of the sovereign individual simply because, as as you say, we are born we are born sort of vulnerable and helpless. And in some respects, we leave this life vulnerable and helpless. So if you're a sovereign individual, it's probably for a very brief period of your life. And for most people throughout history, their lives have actually been quite brief, but also quite nasty and brutish. And so the state sort of fulfills a role of balancing some of those things out in a way that is just impossible to do beyond a certain way with just say your natural family or even your friendship group. And so I, I find some of the, I guess what I'd call the small L liberal uh, understanding of the world to be almost pathetic and infantile in a way and un- and basically unrealistic, which is probably the biggest criticism a conservative can give of something apart that apart from something being unsound, it's unrealistic. But I'll give you an example. Uh, the the line attributed to the Duke of Wellington of when he was asked if he supported the Great Reform Act, and he famously said, "Reform, reform are not things bad enough already." I mean, he, he meant that as a sort of as a sort of I think as a joke, but it sort of got crystallized into into conservative thought. And I think what he was getting at was the idea that we just do not pursue reform for its own sake. And uh, in some respects, that is a sort of, you know, if there's no need to change, there is a need not to change, which can I say in my lifetime, I have not seen necessarily as a bad thing because there are unwise changes. At the same time, conservatism has an amazing flexibility and practicality to it, which has enabled it to change when it's necessary. So for instance, in the 19th century, a lot of the uh, legislation to to restrain Things say like excesses and particularly regarding the factories and so on, that was brought in by the sort of the sort of young conservatives around Disraeli and the sort of Tory forwards. And that's very much a, a heritage that that I I sort of find appealing. And uh, I mean, to give some positives, I mean, you see in the sort of movement of people, even say in the United States, you have people like Adrian Vermeule and you have uh, Patrick Deneen and the sort of post-liberal, the post-liberal movement. And it's just very interesting because it's trying to rethink in a modern context, in the same way, say, Philip Blonde with Red Tory is trying to rethink as well, what is the conservative relationship to the state and and what do we see the state doing? And I think it's a really big problem for the right is that the state is here, the state is not going anywhere. And so you have to sort of ask yourself, well, what do you think you want the state to do? And it's it's just simply unrealistic, this idea that somehow we're all going to retreat to this sort of libertarian tech policy where we're all going to be so... I mean, the whole thing's ridiculous, and 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 it's and it's has a certain degree of almost a social Darwinist aspect as well. It's like, uh, you know, you sort of should applaud the rubes and the easy marks getting found out by these very smart people, and the natural Darwinian affliction of money from stupid to smart people, etc. I, I find I find all that sort of thing just I find it personally I find it morally contemptible, but I just find it very very stupid because societies in which large numbers of people feel that they are being taken advantage of and they have no stake in that society, they become inherently very unstable societies. So I think one thing conservatives are generally should be quite good on, and I distinguish this from, say, the more 1980s turn into libertarianism, but one thing conservatives should be good on is we want as many people as possible to have as much of a stake as possible in the society so they feel some part of it. And, you know, it's, I think it was Disraeli who said, if the cottage isn't happy, then the if the cottage is not happy, then the manor house cannot be secure. In other words, everyone's got to feel part of of the society. So that's something that I have very strongly in me. So it's one of the reasons why when I write, I write so much about housing 
and and housing security because at the end of the day, yeah, food, clothing, shelter. If people do not have some sort of security in terms of their basic life, their day to day life, and somewhere to come home to, then I, I I have no idea why they're expected to have any kind of real loyalty to a society that doesn't look after them. And I realise people are going to be screaming through the podcast. Well, that sounds like paternalism, to which I would say, yes, conservative is paternalism. It is paternal. It's paternalistic. It has elements of patriarchy in, in the literal biblical patriarch idea that the government is there to help protect people who can't protect themselves, and it's there to ensure justice between stronger and weaker parties. That is literally what the state is there for. Yeah, I don't want to, but, I, but, if I, but if I can just put it this way, I I find it just very strange when so much of society is obviously in a in a problematic state, and we're obviously speaking in Australia in 2023 where huge numbers of people lack security in their day-to-day lives. And whether you like it or not, you might have more appetite for risk than other people, but most people's lives have enough risk in them. And this is something I always say to people who are more libertarian-minded than me. Most people's day-to-day lives have more than enough risk in them. They do not need any more risk. What they want is order, and they want security, and they want a basic fairness and for justice to be done. That is what they want. Those are not massive demands. And to the degree that your politics is not addressing those demands, then you will fail. Yeah, I, that, that point about social co- cohesion or stability through participation and perhaps we could say buy-in because mm-hmm. I, I think it's so important because sometimes I think some people think all we need is a bit of law and order or in the libertarian universe, a kind of minimalist umpire, you know, uh, sort of gatekeeper, night watchman is the, is mm-hmm. the term that comes in. But uh, people need a lot more than that to feel secure. They need to feel some kind of shared citizenship, neighborliness or belonging. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to be maximalist. You don't, it's not that you have to agree with anyone. No society's ever existed in complete agreement. That's not essential. But you really cannot afford to have large segments of the society or community disenfranchised or aggrieved or at odds. And this is this is something I think sometimes people on the right don't understand and it's because they feel like this marginalized group and and i think there's some justice sometimes to that that feeling because there are they hear people on the left who clearly would wish that a certain segment on the right uh you know they either denigrate them as just being stupid uh racist bumpkins or they want to quite explicitly and intentionally push them out so that they have no influence over society and i i tell my friends on the left, that's a recipe for disaster. You have to find a place <laughs> and a way of integrating this particular perspective in. But conversely, I find sometimes when you listen to the the programs of the representatives of this now, I think, increasingly populist, I would say populist libertarian in Australia is really the the two ingredients that I, I would describe as corrupting of what I would cons- <laughs> consider a, a more honorable conservative tradition. The kind of society they want just seems to replicate the same sin in reverse. And so uh, sometimes it's some kind of theocratic post-liberal state. Sometimes it's one where the conservatives dominate and set the legal and legislative and policy agenda. Sometimes it's quite literally about vanquishing and exterminating the influence of those other left wing. And it's like, well, there are, there are <laughs> in a country like Australia, if it's going to survive, there has to be a way to include all people, whether you like it or not. It doesn't mean you have to compromise your particular views. It doesn't mean you have to accept every kind of behavior. But at a purely pragmatic point of view, if you want this place, this society to be 
minimally cohesive to the extent necessary for it to not descend into anarchy, you're going to have to make some compromises to allow certain people to pursue the good life in the way they want. Yes, yeah, you, you do. And and it's 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 not just that, it's the fact that it's good it's good for a society, I think, in a in a safety valve kind of way for people to be able to be free to say kind of what they want. I do think on the right, and I say this as someone who goes on the ABC periodically, which is not known to be a natural bastion of conservative thought, but I but I do go on the ABC, and I must admit, I think I get a fair run. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly, if I'm not getting a fair run, I just speak over whoever is trying to stop me. And, and, and but but I think I generally get a fair run. Uh, one big problem the ABC does have is trying to get, and I, I have to defend the ABC. It's our national broadcaster. It takes a lot of flack. It's taking a lot of flack at the moment. And the ABC does try to get conservative people to go on. The number of times I'm asked by ABC people, do you know someone who could speak on this or that? And I have this major problem as a conservative person that a lot of people on the right, for all their kind of beating of their chest, et cetera, a lot of them are frankly scared. So a lot of them are too scared to go on to the ABC or go on and argue, et cetera. And say what you will, I always say this to people, say what you will about the purple-haired revolutionary trot from inner Sydney or whatever. He, she, or they will, <laughs> will go to the ABC in the freezing cold rain, whatever, and will go there and make the case. They are not afraid. And they are not asking to be paid and they're not asking for freebies, et cetera. A lot of people on the right, for reasons I have no idea, think that that they should be above going and putting their argument and making their point and, and, and doing that. And I find there's an actually very strange cowardice about a lot of people on the right. They're afraid to go on the ABC. They're afraid to have a contradictor, et cetera. Uh, perhaps it's my naturally, my naturally combative side. I, I find it, I enjoy it. Like I actually enjoy going on the ABC. I actually really enjoy it. I mean, I must say, I've I've had bigger threats to my existence than a hostile audience at the ABC in my life. But I just find it strange how many people on the right are sort of scared of that. It's it's very unconservative. Like the, I always use this exact analogy to people, and and again, this will upset people. But if you think about a truly titanic sort of conservative figure, perhaps not everyone's favourite type of conservative, but someone say like Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore. He was like in his 60s and 70s. He would go out in the middle of a monsoonal raid and speak to a crowd. And I just think to people, you have to have a certain you know, personal and physical fortitude to go and do things. And I think what a lot of people on the right lack in this country anyway is a willingness to do that. And I think that's just something that I, I think we really, as a group of people, need to get a grip of. And so I think a lot of the problem with the right is intellectual, but I think also some of it is just character and, and basic fortitude. I know that's going to upset people, but I do think that. I think you either turn up and the worst that happens is you get booed or you get criticised. Well, that's life. Um, and, and you've got to go out and make your case. And in some respects, that's the point of being conservatives is you're there, perhaps the only person there saying, this is a terrible idea and we, sh- we should not do this. And I, I don't care if I'm the only person who says this. This is a stupid idea and we should not do this. That's... That may be your lot in life, you know. That that may that may be your job, uh, but yeah, that's something I think you have to do if you're genuinely conservative. I agree. I mean, you definitely have to take the, the unpopular stances you have to take as a conservative are often one saying this is a bad idea in a context where every where not everyone but the the majority and the elite think it's a great idea, uh, and many examples come to mind. But 
let I mean, me ask I, you this. Can I, yeah. can, I you, can I give you a close example? To me, to me, the debate on the voice is one of those things, and I, I'm kind of like a soft yes. I'm somewhere in the mushy middle, but but there is there is a point at which, if I can again, this idea of the community, there is a point at which you, as a sort of conservative-minded person, have to think of the polity generally, and I. I am hoping to not have to say another word about the voice for a while, but if I can just say it for, for Australian purposes, I mean, that is an issue on which you, I think, can have a conservative position for or against. I think it's not one of those things where you have to be in lockstep with anyone and you should be able to to make that case, et cetera. And, and from what I understand, uh, you know, the ABC, for instance, has been trying to get people who are you know, sort of reasonable, no people to come and put their case and they struggle to do so. And, you know, if, if you're if you're asking always in your arguments, whether it's on the voice or any other issue, for an open for a completely open door and a red carpet to be rolled out, we'll be waiting a long time. It's not that is not how debate certainly in this country works. You sort of have to be a little bit difficult and a little bit uh, uh, willing to you know to to push your way through, and you have to have a little bit of uh, you know, a little bit of initiative and a little bit of drive. Uh, you know, what Malcolm Turnbull would call Agility. Um, I just remember the Malcolm Turnbull era. Everything was about being agile and agility. So I thought I'd throw that in. But but, but it was just one of those things that was very, very strange to me is the number of people who are conservative who are either scared or reluctant to go forward and put their arguments. I find that I find that rather strange. I think it also betrays, for a lot of people, a lack of fundamental thinking about why are you conservative? What do you actually believe in? So I think that's a bigger problem also for the Australian right. Well, I think, I think many... People on the right in Australia, and including conservatives, and there is a distinction, but I mean, conservatives, I think generally everyone would put place them on the right for good or ill. Uh, I think there's this self-reinforcing narrative, a siege mentality where everyone hates us, no one wants to hear from us, uh, we'll be cancelled the second we even utter the word uh, conservative. And the thing is, like, like well false narratives there's there's a basis of truth there you know there are, oh, there no, are things no, that can be cancelled for in yeah, our society but yeah. can i just say there is there is that I, I i'm very fortunate insofar as as a barrister i'm self-employed and as long as solicitors brief me and so on i'm i'm okay uh in the sense of my my progression in life but in some respects you have to be willing to sort of almost accept that yes i do run these risks and but that but that would be true of anything is that you have to be willing to do it. And most, most people, the vast majority of people are very fair and understand that's your personal view. We can disagree and we're quite mature about it. I think one of the biggest problems with social media and particularly media being responsive to social media is that one group's jumping up and down about you now has a reverberation in a way it didn't when it was, say, a letter to the editor or something like that. And I think insofar as most people are actually quite fair, I don't think most people are going to cancel you. I don't think they're going to, unless you say something completely stupid and at, to the point where any sensible person would cancel you. Um, I think I think most people are pretty fair and I think a lot of the fears on cancellation are overblown. I, I really do. As, as someone who has gone on the ABC a lot and said some quite outrageous things to to the to the to, from the perspective of someone who's really on the left of politics and likely to start wanting to cancel people. Um, I think generally speaking you can you can avoid that. I think if you're a normal rational person who puts an argument in a cohesive way, most people can disagree with you without wanting to cancel you, and I think that's something that is perhaps unique to Australia. Right? But we just do not have we just do not have, I think, as bad a cancellation. But I mean, I'll give you an example: the the fact that um, I'm not so, I, to be clear, I am not saying cancel, cancellation is not a problem. 
But I'm just saying I think most people are fair enough to to avoid it. I think some of it is part of the different cultures. I think this is a different problem, say, in Melbourne than in Sydney. So um, obviously, if you follow, say, um, what happens with some academics, say, at like Melbourne University versus what happens at Sydney, um, I, I, I lecture part-time at, in, you know, in the Sydney University Law School, and I've never had anyone, to my knowledge, try and cancel me, whereas I, I understand in Melbourne, particularly at Melbourne University, the situation would be different. You would, you would have to be more on your guard. So I, it may be that we're, just, we're talking about a country that is very big and has different cultures in different places as well. But regardless, I think you have to some respects risk that uh, to put your argument. And if you make your argument in an interesting way, there, is, there are people who want to read it. And I've always had a, a good response, even from places where I thought, think my ideas might not be fully welcomed. I've always had a good response. And um, to give you an example, I mean, Jonathan Green, from uh, the, he was from the ABC, who edited Mianjin. He would publish me in Mianjin. You know, Mianjin is not a journal of conservative thought but he would give me a very good run and I would often get very interesting responses from it. And so there, there is interest in that. And most, most people are mature about this and most Australians are. I mean, Australia is, a, Australia is a remarkably harmonious, cohesive country. People at its apex may be fools and carry on in a stupid way, but the average Australian, I think, is a very decent, generous person. I think it's why the country works very well. I actually agree that the average Australian, or, or, or even if I, if I were to sort of try and depict the Australian temperament, which is not a particularly intellectually rigorous concept, but just as a heuristic, I would say it's it's common sense, pragmatic, and maybe lightly conservative. Uh, yes, I, yes, yes, I agree. Australians are small c conservative. Yes, definitely small c. Small c. But they're also... In, in that in that respect, you small c, you go for proven things. So they're very prepared to give someone a fair go and judge them on what they see, and 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 to give people not not they're not prejudiced or anything, but just in spite of their prejudices, they will still give someone a fair go because that is an important part of the national temperament. It's a it's an endearing part of the national temperament. Is that it's not that people don't have rough rough edges and that people don't have sort of like yeah. inbuilt biases or whatever, but they overcome them by giving people a fair go and making this a country that people desperately want to come to. But you know what the thing is, I think, Gray? It's that capital C conservatives don't do a good job of speaking to the sort of small C conservative temperament of Australia. They don't tend to appeal to that. They tend to go for a more dogmatic, doctrinal, (laughs) doctrinaire style of conservatism. And if you're not fully in inside the the bastion, then you're, you're an enemy of the movement, but the the other the other thing that strikes me because I, I really take your point about the the culture, and it's funny observing the kind of cultural phenomenon, if I could describe it like like that, that a lot of capital C conservatives are really vested in or invested in, and I think two things are happening. One, I, and the baseline point I want to make is that I actually think conservatives do not have a cogent account of culture, partly because it doesn't take account of the complexity and the fact that you can have institutional cultures and subcultures. And also, I think they're so obsessed with a particular extreme uh, culture in far left circles, largely on social media, that they can end up uh, uh, over overblowing 
the mo- these sort of uh, left-wing excesses as though somehow they are on the verge of capturing the entire culture, which I just I don't think is plausible because I just don't think culture actually works like that. And just just to drive home the institutional point, I work in a university and I've spent a lot of time around universities, and you realize once you're in that. You know, there's a particular conservative view of universities, which is pretty negative. But of course, when you're actually working inside that sector, your immediate question is, which university are you talking about? Because they all have, (laughs) they're not all the 41 to 43, depending how you count, odd universities in Australia are not all identical. And you shouldn't assume that they're the same with any of the American uh, institutions and, and universities. And so... Ironically, and maybe this goes to the populist libertarian turn where conservatives no longer seem to know anything about institutions, and perhaps that's to do with the fact that uh, conservatives no longer really have elite experience because I'm an elitist. I think conservatives, if you want to change culture, need to be in elite institutions. And so they're looking from the outside. They There's a kind of grievance that we're marginalized and we don't have any cultural capital. But a consequence of that is you, you lack the experience of working in government as we have, of working in universities, of being a, a senior manager in a big corporation or running a big successful business. And so you end up with this strange um, milieu of conservative critics who piss all over every single institution and elite person, but it's from a, a position where they have no idea what it's like to run a, a company or a government department and the like. And so their, their picture of culture, I find just hard to recognize <laughs> or to, to actually relate to empirical reality. And my own experience as a conservative who hasn't been cancelled, working, I've spent my whole life in government institutions, uh, public service institutions and universities. Yeah, I, I'll come back to the cultural thing because I have a slightly a different take on that. But but I agree with you on the university's point. I always say to people, the one common cultural <laughs> issue with universities is managerialism. I mean, I'm sorry, which is, yeah. you know, which is not a thing of the left. It's a thing of like McKinsey's and people like that. Like I think managerialism is the one thing I think every academic across universities, across the English speaking world would complain about is just the administrivia that, yeah. and it may be, it may be, maybe that's a blocking mechanism. You know, you can't ferment the rev, the revolution if you're always being tied up in administrative tasks, can you? And so, so perhaps, it, perhaps managerialism was this very smart way of defeating the revolution at its roots. Where we're going to drown people in red tape. And <laughs> but, uh, but yes, you're you're right in this sense. I agree with you on elites. I, there's a line of Ben Dominich, the American. I think Ben would be more of a libertarian, but he's a very funny writer. He says, "We we need elites." Elitism is not bad in itself, but all our current elites are terrible. That's yeah. that's, a, that's a view I I more or less share. I agree I with that. This, the one, I, and I agree with you about people often talking about the machine of government and not really knowing how it works. It's like whenever I write anything on, on say, military history or analysis of current wars, I always talk about the war machine. And I always say, unless you've been in it, you don't sort of understand how it works. It takes on a logic of itself and it and the beast needs to be fed. It just it, that, and that becomes its, its own existence as its own rationale for doing things. Um, so, so I agree with you there in the fact that you really have to be in it to try and understand it in a good way from outside. Where I sort of differ on the culture war thing is, I think most normal people uh, are kind of tolerant, but m- the culture war, by and large, in this country, is the left pushing things, the right responding to it, and then go, "Oh, that's a culture war." It's like, no, no, no. 
most Australians, to give an exa- just a classic example that's 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 near near to me because I, I follow rugby league, the the annual event with trying to get a pride round going, so a gay pride. Round. I played football all my life. I cannot ever remember anyone ever discussing anyone's sexual orientation. Uh, I'm not saying that guys, you know, locker rooms are not kind of different places, but I don't remember <laughs> it being an issue anyone raised. But I, I'm sure everyone who plays football has played with gay players. And I would think in particularly in football, everyone treats each one on their own merits. Like you you get abused you know, in rugby for missing a tackle or dropping a ball. You don't, people otherwise don't care about whatever else you do. And you have this sort of annual effort to try and bring a pride round into rugby league where something like 40% of the players are from Polynesian Pacifica backgrounds of which are very religious, who if they then boycott, you will not have a round at all because they're so key to the game. And it's like, there is an inability. It's the Seinfeld joke about wear the ribbon. And and people who want other people to wear the ribbon have to accept not everyone is going to wear your ribbon, and that is okay. In yeah. the same way, I would never ask someone to wear what if we if I had a ribbon for something, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but but I, I would never ask them to do it. And I just I have no idea why it is people cannot accept a sort of an agreement of the social settlement to just disagree on some things. We are not going to agree on some things. It's it's like the the recurrent debate about, for instance, you know, uh, and I say this as a Catholic, you know, churches running schools and hospitals. I'm sorry, I'm Catholic. My church has been running schools and hospitals long before the Commonwealth of Australia existed. Actually, long before Australia was discovered by the British or settled by the British or invaded by the British, whatever you want to call it. I mean, that is just reality. And, and the sort of, I guess, the dogmatic secularism, because I... I think a lot of the issues pushed on the culture are actually not by, I, don't, I just don't think there would be that many gay people who'd be pushing it or or this. I think a lot of it is a kind of dogmatic secularism that really wants to put the institutions we do have in their place. And this is the narrative and you've all got to get on board. So insofar as if the culture war is being fought, very much from the right perspective, it's being fought on as a defence, as a defence to protect things that we value. In other words, we're not going to wear your ribbon kind of thing. That's that's where I think the basis of it is. I think that most people, and I think most people understand that. I think uh, the interesting thing about the Israel Folau episode, for instance, and yeah, as a general rule, you should not go on social media posting things that are offensive to people. I mean, if you really care about people's souls, you should minister them individually because that's your job as a Christian is to minister to people in their particular way, in their particular lives. So as a general rule, I think it's bad for people to do uh, what Israel did. I, I, w- I, would, I would certainly never do that. At the same time, most Australians, I think, don't like the idea of someone, even someone they vehemently disagree with, losing their job over something they believe, no matter how stupid what they believe is. Mm. And uh, I think I think that was just an interesting moment because I think a lot of people who otherwise would never have agreed with anything Israel Flower said and would otherwise have said, look, st- stop posting stupid stuff for your football player. All we care about is you grab the ball and you score. That's what we care about. Instead, he became a sort of martyr figure and it sort of blew up because they ended up having to settle because our law reflects more that position of you can have stupid ideas, but you shouldn't be fired for them. Mm. Our law reflects that more than it does the cancel culture. And I think that's a good thing. And I, I think as someone who often defends people on the left when they're attacked, um, I think more people on the right should be doing that. You actually want a society where people can have as many stupid ideas as they want. And I just don't think their livelihoods should be threatened for it. I don't know, whether I agree with them or I disagree with them, I don't want people's lives being threatened. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. So I guess if something I'm trying to conserve, I'm trying to conserve a sort of pluralistic civic settlement where everyone gets to do their own thing 
and you can believe what you want or not believe. You know, Australia is a pluralist country. It's not a secular country. It's a pluralist country. You can believe whatever you want. Or you can believe nothing. But no one's, no one's going to coerce you. At the same time, you don't get to intrude upon other people. So before the recent state election in New South Wales, we had the incident at St. Michael's Church in Belfield. So if you're Catholic in Sydney, you know the church. It's got a very large Maronite uh, and Syriac and other Christian minority uh, parishioner base. And there were there was a trans group that was protesting outside of it because Mark Latham was speaking there. And, you know, all of the, you know, a huge number of people turned up to counter-protest it and the police had to be called in and so on. And so insofar as that's a microcosm of cultural, we probably don't want incidents like that. We instead want people just to be able to do their own thing. And if churches want to host people, they should be allowed. And if people who are not churches, but it's a secular people want to host people that are controversial, they should be allowed and people should be allowed to say their own thing. Um, but otherwise, you're, you're going into a very difficult sort of almost Weimar politics where people are having their lives threatened, having their careers threatened. I mean, the real cancel culture. And then people start to literally physically defend their positions. Mm. And the problem with that is that that culture, once it is unleashed, is almost impossible to stop. That, I mean, there are, very few, there are very few periods in history where you can put actually people stopped agreeing to disagree and they started to want to coerce people to agree with them. But then it got peaceful. No, no, it, it goes further from that because when you're you know, protesting at people's churches, that's a that's real identity politics. That's going at the 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 most significant identity they ha- have. And and the, the the most interesting thing I found about that episode was something I was told by someone from the Maronite community, which was along with the Christians who came to defend the church came a lot of Muslims from surrounding areas because a lot of them work in the same trades, they know each other, etc. And I, I just think people, I just do not understand why people think this is healthy. Like, I have no idea why people think this is healthy. You need to have a situation where we can agree to disagree, we argue over things, and we solve these issues through a civil politics, and we decide things at the ballot box. And if you don't like it, you can campaign against them. You can have, at a future ballot box, have them reversed. And that's that's how we do things. Well, certainly, yeah. that's how we should do things in this country. For a simple reason, going back to the question about conservatism, we have so many natural fault lines as it is because Australia is a big country. We have a large immigration intake. We always will. We always, we're always going to need to have people. We have people coming from all around the world. We're never, ever going to agree on everything. So people who have some idea that we have some idyllic consensus, we're never going to, all going to agree on everything. But what we can do is we can respect the disagreements we have, but agree that we're all part of the same Australian team together. And I think that is something that I think it's incumbent, not just on conservatives, but I think on Australians generally, to embrace and live out in their lives. I largely agree with that. And I think where a lot of conservatives get into a bit of trouble, and it's to do with clarity of thought here, is that I I don't see an alternative in the Australian context, given what is given, and you've outlined some, you can't undo multiculturalism. So for me, this idea of of, uh, sort of... um, nationalism based purely on Britishness, which sort of harks back to a a past. I just don't think you can turn back the clock. But setting that aside, I think where conservatives come a bit undone is I don't think they realise that the only alternative to some kind of generally liberal, plural fundament within which conservative operates is some kind of authoritarianism, which then undermines everything conservatives say that they profess to believe in, particularly with this libertarian push with the emphasis on individual rights and liberty that we've seen. 
the the way I square the circle is to say, look, I accept a generally what I would call liberal order, even though I'm not a, a liberal, mm-hmm. because that's the only world in which I can see a guaranteed space for me to both live as a conservative, but to also argue in the public arena for a normative conservative approach to politics and culture. And so the the clarity of thought that I think is missing is to think that that liberal order is the death of conservatism, which I think goes to your confidence point. I mean, I don't. That's that's so defeatist. I mean, why would you bother being a conservative if you can't survive in a state that's not where conservatism isn't actually enforced uh, by the state? I'm confident enough to think that I can make a compelling case for the conservative disposition, outlook, intellectual tradition, and I do make that case. So. I'm not a cultural relativist. I'm not a moral relativist. I'm not a political relativist. I have very strong views on what makes society work, the way authority should be exercised, and like, and I'll prosecute that case. But I don't see a world in which an alternative universe in which I can be a normative conservative, given the plural, the realities of pluralism, unless the state agrees to just provide space for conservatives, progressives to uh, duke it out, because to me, you can't. Conservatism is not something you can enforce in a person because I don't think you can enforce any ideology. Just look at all, look at places like the Soviet Union or any place. It can survive generations, and the moment it collapses, you realize everyone was pretending to go along with the ideology. They they were never uh, genuinely uh, convinced. Now that said, Gray, I do want to bring in one critique of our position that that is obvious, and I'd be interested to hear your response to it. Now, the critique will be, well, I saw very well that you and I have such faith in government and, you know, we think elites can be good. I mean, set aside the fact that I don't, every society, even one that goes through a revolution just ends up with a new set of elite. And the thing with elites is, and I'm with um, uh, Yuval Levin here, it's about the quality of your elites. And that's where, particularly in America, there's a generation of elites that have just been an utter moral failure so you want your elites to be wise and virtuous but also intelligent and and competent so the choice is not elites or no elites it's the kind of elites you have which is why the anti-elitism on the right is just self-defeating but i digress so they'll say look you government lovers i mean where were you during covid when all of our rights were stripped and we had these lockdowns that were so destructive and vaccine mandates and it goes on and on and on how could you be such naive fools <laughs> to think okay, that well, government yeah. will not abuse its power. And also they would say, Gray, what world are you living in? Clearly the institutions have all been captured by the left and they're trying to ram down uh, trans ideology and they've taken over our schools and our universities and you're sitting there defending the legitimacy of government. How would you How would you respond to those kind of criticisms? Okay, well, first of all, because we all differ on our, what our view of conservatism is, I actually can make an argument that we actually, to some degree, have a conservative settlement. I think, for instance, the fact that in this country we have things like Medicare, we have things like uh, regulated you know, terms of employment and conditions of employment, I see them as fundamentally small-c conservative views. They, they are things, for instance, Benjamin Disraeli supported, particularly in the relation to the Factory Acts and so on. So I, I don't see I see that as a particularly conservative settlement. I'm very happy with that. I, same way I think... You know, forms of, of government you know, provided healthcare in a sort of mixed health system like we have in this country, I think that works very well. That is something in other conservative jurisdictions, you know, the Germans, the Christian Democrats, and the like, these are very common sort of small-c conservative things. So 
unless your view of conservatism is that it's basically libertarianism, but it's sober, properly dressed, and doesn't have a criminal record, um, if that's if that's your view, if that's your view of of of, of conservatism, then you obviously need to go more deeply. Now, to answer your question about the pandemic, I I was a strong proponent, including Derrissat on the ABC, of people getting vaccinated, and indeed I indeed I may have once or twice defended vaccine mandates. So again, this is this this difference between conservatism understood properly and say smaller liberalism. Conservatism is about the about the community more than the individual, and it's about conserving the community and conserving the body politic and protecting the herd. And people getting vaccinated was a way to protect the herd from uh, a a pandemic. And in Australia, we had very high rates of vaccination because I think inwardly most people agreed with this. Um, or took the advice of their doctors to get vaccinated. And so we had a much lower death count than other countries. Now, were the lockdowns bad? I spent the pandemic in, in Sydney. Again, this is the differences in such a big federal country as ours. I spent the pandemic in Sydney where we had one, lo- one major lockdown, which went arguably a month too long. But that was the response for the, the spread of the pandemic in circumstances we didn't yet have the vaccines. So... Insofar as I had a villain of the pandemic, to me it was Morrison saying that it's not a race. Uh, I would have got the vaccines in as quickly as I could and got everyone vaccinated. I would have had the sense of urgency. I said all this on the ABC. Um, I think the delay bred hesitancy. I think so. I think it was one of the faults of the government not getting vaccines in as quickly as they possibly could, like in other countries, was that it gives the impression that there's delay. Delay suggests hesitancy. Perhaps we're not really in a crisis because if we were, you would have moved much more quickly than you did. So that's my first thing is I think the vaccines took far too long. In respect of vaccine mandates, I don't have a problem with them, certainly in particular areas of life. It makes perfect sense if you're in a high human contact area or an area where you're working with people in a confined space. I say that as someone who's in the Navy. Military is an obvious place where you have vaccine mandates, so police and the like. They're just obvious places where you have vaccine mandates. And people say, well, that's a restriction on freedom. I'm sorry. There is no ideal world in which you get to have everything your way. You just, it just does not work that way. You, as again, to come back from Seinfeld, I forget who it was who said we live in a society. Um, we do live in a society, and what you do does have real world impacts on people. Now, if people say about the lockdowns, and and that that arguably went on for too long, at schools, I was never in favour of schools being closed and the like. So there are genuine critiques about whether things went massively overboard. But I have to say, um, in New South Wales, where the I think the government that handled the pandemic the best, the government was recently voted out. And in places like Western Australia and Victoria, where I think it was handled the worst, they got re-elected. So at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, however conservative you are, you cannot stop people voting for things that they deep down were happy with. And obviously there were a lot of people who were happy with how it was, how it was done. And so it may be that for people who are upset about that, pandemic experience, their they're real issue is with their fellow citizens who rewarded politicians who did what they did. And it may be that your job as conservative is actually to point out, as the unwisdom of that becomes clear in the Easter part, to point out to people who voted for it, well, you were wrong to do so. And I hope now you've learned a valuable lesson because societies like individuals do learn lessons from stupid things they do. Um, and, and that is a natural part of life. So I, I think the argument that to be conservative in the pandemic meant that you embraced some form of of sort of individualism, I think it's just ridiculous. It's completely unconservative. The whole point of being conservative is to conserve the society, conserve the individuals in it. 
and particularly in a viral pandemic that involves you're going to have restrictions on what people can do. Now, they should not be on for any longer than is absolutely necessary, but you will need to do it. And and that's just life. And I, I just I refuse to jump on some sort of libertarian bandwagon whereby you say in a crisis, the state is not allowed to act. Crises are where the state acts. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, they do. And that's just part of living in a community is that you're under the law as well. And if you really didn't like it, you have to vote the government that's doing it out. And obviously, large numbers of your fellow citizens were content with what was done because they re-elected them. So I just, I, I fail to see, as a, as a conservatively minded person, any sort of other option than this. I think I disagree with you on the policy questions, but I think we're in fundamental agreement about the legitimacy of the role of government here. And I think, again, this is where I, where I agree that there's been a libertarian turn uh, in my experience, because I think the COVID experience for some people who would have described themselves as a conservative and may have been in our orbit on the question of the legitimacy legitimacy of government as a an enterprise and its ability to act on behalf of the citizens. I think they came out of COVID with the view that actually government's illegitimate. We can't trust it and it's it's harmful. And that that's the classic libertarian position, yeah. which is it's about individual autonomy from government. And can I can I just qualify what I'm saying? As I said, I, I spend it in Sydney. If I'd lived through Melbourne, who knows? I may be flying the Gadsden flag right now. If if you know the don't tread on me yeah. flag, if yeah, you know, it may have sent a number of people around the bend because it just went on for so long. But obviously, there is a certain there is a sufficient votes in Victoria for people who can forgive rampant incompetence and and just and yeah, you know, the world's longest lockdown. They can overlook that. At the end of the day, if that is what people want, unfortunately, whether good or bad, you are bound by that. In the same yeah. way. People on the left, when you know John Howard was re- re-elected after the Iraq War was found to be bound on false premises, you have to just accept there are large numbers of your fellow countrymen who disagree with you or overlook something you think is of burning importance. That's yeah. just part of living in the polity. But again, I experienced in Sydney. I, I don't know what it's like in Melbourne. Um, I also didn't have the problem that a number of people, you know, friends of mine had, which was they had concerns about they had lockdowns and they were away from elderly parents mm. uh, my parents passed away a while ago so i did not have that and so i th- that had had i had that experience i would perhaps have a different view as well so everyone's experience of the pandemic was different and their responses to it is different i i, I do not want to be heard to be criticizing anyone who had a different view based on their peculiar circumstances because i am aware from friends it really harmed a lot of people's lives not just say economically but just their relationships with wider family because they were physically prevented from being there. And uh, one of the things we had in Sydney is that lockdown breaches, particularly in Sydney, occurred in places where we had a lot of uh, uh, migrant, new migrant families in circumstances where it's unthinkable that you would ever be away from your parents or grandparents mm. and so on. And they and I, I kind of find that very endearing. I know that sounds overly sentimental, but I find that very endearing. That, that's I actually find that quite endearing. You've got people who whose lives they would rather risk a viral pandemic than be away from their family. I find that quite on a personal level. I find that very, very endearing. So, you know, that's just something that's also an interesting cultural thing, perhaps difference between Anglos and everyone else. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Anglo idea of the nuclear family versus other cultures' idea of the extended family. So, Yeah, I, I mean, just to put some more meat on the bones I was laying out, uh, you know, I, I'm 
much more in the the sort of critical camp of lockdowns, mandates, and the like. I'm vaccinated uh, myself, but I don't, don't actually have any particular beef with uh, vaccines. That's a whole Pandora's uh, box, mm. and I have views there. But that, I mean, if there's one topic you don't I, want to get I, into, I, I, I'm I, the right. I don't, I don't want you getting the letters that I got. I used to get letters whenever I went on the ABC to have vaccines. I would get letters sent to me, my chambers, basically accusing me of killing people or, or whatever. Um, to be fair, no one was actually threatening directly my life, but they were blaming me for various things because I'd promoted vaccines. So, so uh, I mean, it was it was just something. It was an episode in our history where I think, for a lot of people, it became just increasingly bad. And as I said, I'm not for a lockdown that lasts one moment longer than it has to. Um, yeah. Even someone who is as introverted and antisocial as I can be um, is is not going to think a lockdown is a good thing because yeah. people need to meet people. People need to be around family. Precious moments of life were missed. So those were bad. And I think the worst part was closing schools. I think that was just terrible. Uh, oh, totally. As someone who had a, who had to homeschool, that was just uh, very uh, detrimental. And I, and I know uh, of some horrible outcomes uh, through family circles and other people. But... I mean, I'm in a, in a really odd place of being pro-vaccine and anti-mandate, which I can tell you is a very small. Uh, no, but I respect. I respect people. People. I get the wrong. I respect it. It's just I come out from a different background, and I guess my thing is that um, I I have this distinct memory from my late father's work. Uh, we came back to Australia through India. My my father had a very interesting professional life, and I I caught whooping cough, and I had a very very uh, serious bout of whooping cough as a uh, younger person, and that experience was terrible. And I, without the whooping cough vaccination, I would certainly have uh, probably would have killed me. And yeah. so, I guess for me, I'm just someone who is very pro vaccines, as someone whose life probably may, if not was saved, it was certainly was helped by the fact that I was vaccinated against whooping cough. And and so, I just have a perhaps a I just don't see a lot of the problems with with vaccines. So now, people will say, "Well, not all vaccines work as well. Some do have side effects. People have vaccine injuries. I'm well aware of one prominent doctor who's had a vaccine injury. So I'm not dismissing that. But I'm just saying policy is done in the general for the general population for the broadest common good. It doesn't descend to the particular. It's really about the general. And so, as a general rule, I just didn't have an issue with the vaccine mandates, um, in particularly in certain sec- in certain areas. I'm not saying everyone has to be vaccinated. I'm just saying. In certain areas, it just goes without saying. It's just common. So, he, he, so here's where my particular view I would describe as conservative because my opposition to mandates has nothing to do with my body, my autonomy, all that kind of stuff because I'm, I'm with you. There are situations where governments, particularly in crises, do have the legitimate authority under my conservative conception of government to act. I just didn't think a, a mandate was warranted uh on the basis of the characteristics of this particular disease. So I'm, I'm not against mandates per se. I mean, if there's a disease killing five out of 10 children under the age of 10, then I will be all in favor of, of a mandate if a mandate is going to be the only way to get to uh, herd immunity. So in this case, I do think the mandate ultimately was unjust because I think particularly young, like a school teacher in their 20s, just this... I think whether they were vaccinated or not was just going to make no difference to the overall. And and I'm also factoring in the fact that I think most uh, the majority of Australians willingly 
without coercion went went ahead and got yeah. uh, vaccinated. But the thing is, I did so in my view, and I know I, I I can respect the debates on both sides, and because I'm not in the anti-vax camp, this is this is not. Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I, I agree. With you. I understand exactly what you're saying. It's just my view is a lot of what we know now was simply yeah. not known in March of 2020. Yeah, and and I think people who think there's some enormous conspiracy behind it, which, as you know, you've worked in government. Yeah. The people you work with in government are not the people you would get to run any kind of conspiracy. I mean, these are lovely people who, by and large, are not the A-team a lot of the time. So if you're going to run a conspiracy, <laughs> these aren't the people you get. But the point being is no one knew this in March of 2020. The only playbook we really had for this was, apart from previous bad flu outbreaks, was the Spanish flu, which yeah. would cut a swathe through Australia um, yeah. and particularly Indigenous communities. It was terrible to our Indigenous communities. Um, and that was something that I genuinely thought of as someone who became slightly obsessed with reading about the Spanish flu. That just went through Indigenous communities particularly. And so I thought at the very least we have to protect people who, who, who can't be protected as best we can. It's also why I was just such a uh, so one-minded one about just getting the vaccines here. I actually didn't really think about the mandates until much later, but just getting the vaccines here. And you're right, look, there may be certain categories where they overreach, but the one I always found strange was people would say, well, you've got people like in the police and the military who refuse to get vaccinated. Why should they lose their jobs? Like, these are the, like the ultimate examples of essential services where you are stuck with other people. So, yeah. sorry, you signed on to this. Like, it's like, yeah, it's like safe business yeah. experience. Join Navy, Army, Air Force. Your first few days, you're getting jabbed. You're a human pincushion. That's just part of the deal. <laughs> and, and and that's just something that's life. So I guess I come at it with a slightly more, um, I guess uh, I'm somewhat less obsessed with the individualist ideas. But I, but I take your argument about proportionality. That is an yeah. extremely good argument against what I've put. And that is that, look, the scale of the threat didn't need to be yeah. wanted to in this way. But, but, but I, I totally recognise that that... Has become. I, I was pretty. I was pretty early, to be honest, on the lockdown skepticism. I was always against the school closures, and uh, because I was in the ACT and in my forties, I was I was vaccinated before I even saw any criticism of vaccines because we were so early and way way ahead of the um, that that uh, whole debate. But I was I was never really in favor of mandates. But here's here's where I think the right has made a, a fundamental intellectual error. And that is, uh, I'm willing to agree with them that some unjust actions were taken by the government or if unjust is too strong, that they made some errors. But I'm sorry, if making an error of policy delegitimizes the entire concept of a government, then government is simply not possible. And if every citizen decided that the government was an enemy at the moment they did something that that citizen disagreed with, then that is a recipe for anarchy. And right there, we're going down a path that is completely anathema to conservatism. And so really, I think the proper conservative response is to say simply that the government erred, but it's still legitimate. And, it, and the government has the right to take the actions. But Unless you think we live in a world where a gov the, the standard for government should be perfection, and that perfection should be a kind of subjective view of, you know, perfect in my eyes, so that it does exactly what I want it to do, notwithstanding the fact that there's 26 million people in, a, in Australia and a federal system and all of this. And so, 
at the end of the day, it comes back to right where you began, Gray, which is that at the essence of conservatism has to be a view or a doctrine of legitimacy and of uh, political authority. And that is the thing that's been completely, completely lost. And see, I actually wonder if these conservatives, so-called, who lost faith in government, ever really had any <laughs> strong concept of what a government was, what made it legitimate, because you can criticise a government and its actions without having to become an anti-state revolutionary. Yeah, I, I do. I also, though, think some of it is tied to the fact that it's not just a, a move of libertarianism, but it's a it's an irreligious form of, of, of conception of politics. So I think one thing that is bound up with conservatism is the idea of, of biblical God or biblical truth. And by that, I, I'm not saying you have to be Christian. You can be Jewish, Christian, Muslim, what have you? But there's some idea of there is a there is a basic scriptural truth that you accept, and that's external to you, and that transcends you. And I think to the degree that you're dealing with people, say in a political movement, in this case, say conservatism, but there is no there is no obvious belief in that transcendent being and in the absolutes of right and wrong. Then it's very hard to have an argument about legitimacy because then everything is about contingency and what is right in a contingent moment and so on. And it leads to a form of, say, pragmatism, which which is, I think, a fundamentally small L liberal idea. You know, this works and so on. It can also be a conservative idea. It's like this mm. works for generations. This is why we do it. But in this case, I think it's a smaller liberal idea. So I think the removal of, um, you know, the removal of the sort of, I guess what I would call it, you know, sort of the boring conservatives who all sort of had some religious affiliation and their replacement in a sort of just as personnel with people who were sort of more honed by, say, libertarian ideas, which I don't think have any sort of religious basis, uh, I think is another issue of that. Because if you grow up in a sort of religious context, and again, it doesn't matter which one, it's a sort of or it's a sort of hierarchical structure in which uh, you know, you know, there's man and his maker, or woman and his ma- and her maker, um, and you grow up with that and that idea of having to give account. And the idea mm. of there being absolute right and wrong. There's also the idea of that there are th- authorities on this earth that are set above you, and that it's your duty to to cooperate with. And as uh, you know, uh, you know, what was it? Um, I think it's I think it's one of in one of Peter's letters about you know, f- fear God, honor honor Caesar. And you know, it's an amazing thing to think about, given that Peter has seen by the time he's writing this, or Mark is writing this for Peter. Uh, Peter is Peter is writing this that he's obviously seen Caesar kill a lot of people he knew. Uh, not not putting putting our Lord to one side. So so there is you know there's that whole idea within I guess the Christian context because that's the only one I can really speak to myself that you know authority and the idea of of godly authority and political authority do actually have some sort of relationship with it with them. Now if you're a sort of more libertarian mind, you might say actually no they're two completely different things mm. and they're kind of at odds with each other. But no but but for the most for the, almost all of Christendom, everyone has always believed that. The, the political legitimacy comes ultimately from a sort of biblical concept of a community and a nation and how it relates to each other. You know, and, and the words of, um, I think it's in Judges, you know, in the times when Israel had no king, everyone did what pleased them, right, giving the rough contemporary translation. You know, in those times, Israel had no king, so everyone did whatever they wanted or had no judges. They, they did whatever they wanted. And that's just a, and that's just a nature of humans, but which revelation brings home to us and that is you do need a centralized authority you do need sources of absolutes that are then informed by these older traditions 
it's not enough. It's not enough of a protest to say against something this inconveniences me. Like that's that's not enough of it. There's got to be something deeper to it. And so, insofar as to answer your question, insofar as conservatism proper has had replaced from its basis that foundational scriptural idea of authority, and it's been replaced by a sort of smaller liberal idea of individualism, then you end up in this kind of, I think, dead end. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It, the the, Christ, the conservative Christian response to the whole COVID thing has, was the most surprising to me, uh, particularly in the context of someone working on political theology long before COVID arrived. And aside from the multiple biblical passages about, you know, submitting to political authority, praying for the emperor, uh, entreating the emperor, uh, and a whole set of things like that, not to mention the authority of the the church. The strangest thing for me is that, and I'll talk, I'll talk about Protestantism here because I think, you know, the individualism of Protestant uh, spirituality and faith and doctrine here may be... Uh, in some sense, responsible for this libertarian uh, term because it, I think it had, had um, fertilized the ground for this kind of the sovereignty of the individual um, who just has a direct relationship with God that's not mediated by the church and political institutions and, and government and no one can tell me what God wants me to do. But the, the strangest thing to me is they are uber, they love authority in the family setting and yet to me that that's obviously not where it ends so i i i think the the conservative view of the family is ultimately aristotelian in the sense that that society merges out of the nuclear family and by families expanding and that that means the foundational political idea or category is family and so i would argue the the health of the family has a greater bearing on the health of a society than than anything else so that's a good conservative view i'm just saying that the the, it should go back further to Aristotle because I, I, I think sometimes conservatives lose sight of the, the way that, that the family builds up society, whereas they tend to just view as a, it's me and my family against the culture. But the funny thing with the, the conservative Christians is they have such a strong view of authority inside their own family and then have this anti-authoritarian <laughs> view outside which, which again is a travesty of the Aristotelian concept that ultimately that family authority traces its way all the way up to uh, the governing body and the ruler, whether it's uh, one person or a small group of people or some kind of democratic. And for the Christian, it should go all the way to, to God. And they, they have chopped out this entire middle bit. And uh, I find that completely incoherent. And I think this is this is one one of the consequences is that all of this anti-state, anti-elite, anti-authoritarian um, attitude or mood on the right simply deals you out of politics and culture. That is, it you ultimately remove yourself from the conversation. If you get up on the ABC or the dramas you have, and you say, "Well, the government's illegitimate, uh, the culture is is a hundred percent." corrupt and demonic well you're not you, you can't be ex expected to come back because it's a kind of conversation stopper there's no <laughs> there's nowhere to to go there you're saying effectively you can't enter into discourse with other people because you're against pluralism 
No, no. I mean, I, I think your point about I think your point about authority is right. I mean, I guess perhaps this is more my want. I go back to the Romans, and then <laughs> it's sort of the idea of yeah, you have you, you have the idea of like particularly with when Augustus sort of takes over to right the ship. You know, he sort of sort of sees himself as the father of Rome, and you know, we've gone off track. We need to restore the old Roman values. You know, the Roman family fathers have got to take charge of the family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and that idea of the 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 mos maiorum, the idea of the mores of the society that we've always gone by as Romans, and and so those which is in itself is a tradition. I mean, one of the one of the strangest parts for me um, is that I know what you said about Protestants and Catholics. That some of that mentality seeped into Catholicism. I mean, that, this was something as a Catholic I found very strange. The Pope was very good. The Pope, our current Pope, uh, blessedly, actually is a was a biochemist before he joined the Jesuits, and so he was very good on vaccines about vaccination about the points of vaccination. I mean, I think I'm not sure. I can't obviously. <laughs> I would never try to speak for the Pope, but but I think he might be uncomfortable with some of the mandates, et cetera, at a certain level. But mm. there's only vaccines who'd be for. You, 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 and the Pope, you and the current Pope might actually be in some, <laughs> in some patico here. Maybe but, he's my guy. Maybe. But, but, <laughs> but, but some of that I did, like, seeped into Catholicism. And I, I did a, a sort of like a, an event with a doctor and a bishop on the issue for Catholics about getting vaccinated when the vaccines were coming online. And the amount of pushback I got from otherwise people who would Think with the church on everything else. This is like their red line, and it was very strange because that is alien to the Catholic tradition. Like it just is. Like there's not, there's not in the Catholic tradition a history, as you can probably appreciate, of mm. my body, my choice. Like so, for instance, and it's not just on abortion. Catholics have extremely low rates of conscientious objection because in Catholicism there is no conscientious objection in wartime. You'll you might hear of one or two Catholics trying to pull on that pull the card of, of conscientious objection. There's no conscientious objection in Catholicism as a doctrine because the state has every right to draw on you in a time of crisis. So too bad. You you, you should have picked, ticked the other box on your dog tags, but this one doesn't work. And so it was very strange in the pandemic. Even some Catholics got that as well. And it's strange because in our tradition as a political matter, the state has always played a large role. And in some respects, a lot of the sort of uh, Protestant critique of Catholicism as a political matter, has been that Catholicism's, are too, you know, has, has been that Catholicism and Catholics particularly, they're too keen on kings and emperors. They're too keen, keen on the state itself. Uh, you know, Catholicism goes hand in hand with Roman law, which is prescriptive. Uh, you know, you have codes of law that are prescriptive and that are very clear to everyone what the rules are. Because one thing is, Catholics we love, we love rules, we love structures and rules. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I always always used to joke with people who are not Catholic. They say, well. Catholicism is very legalistic, and I say you, you say that like it's a bad thing. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, it is very legalistic. And it was one of those strange things during the pandemic, though, that a lot of that Protestant critique of Catholicism—that you know, you're too interested in what the state thinks, you're too concerned about this, what about your freedom to know God on His own terms, etc.? Some of that just came into Catholicism by a back door of, well, you know, the state is wrong, and as, as if somehow they were, you know, you know Sophie Scholl, like you know. And it, it was it was genuinely strange. Like I have to say, the pandemic broke a lot of people, but particularly in that realm, because as a political matter, you know, you're talking about political theologies. As a political matter, Catholicism and the state sort of go hand in hand. In a sense, it makes sense if you go back to Constantine why that would be. I mean, the 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 church and state has moved together, and I, I think other older Protestant traditions, say like Lutheranism, would be much closer to Catholicism on that. I can't speak for Lutherans, but I suspect. Seriously, uh, serious Lutherans and seriously reformed people, yeah, Presbyterians would have a very similar view on that. 
but somehow that um, that almost rebellion, if I can put it that way, against authority as a as a as a political ideology, that sort of really seeped its way in in a way that I would never have expected. I was genuinely genuinely surprised at that. I, I never thought I would ever see that. And even in some Catholic circles, that came in. Now institutionally, that didn't change at all. But I'm just saying. Yeah. At the lower level, I did I did see that, and it really shocked me. I mean, there's a strange, uh, particularly on the Protestant side, amnesia going on here, because uh, if you go back to the Reformation, mm. your Calvins, your Luthers, they all had a really strong view of the state and its legitimacy. Mm. They thought all government basically came from God, following mm. Paul in Romans 13, mm. 1 to, or 1, 13, 1, and uh, the, the interesting thing, I'm actually doing some work at the moment on the history of the doctrine of providence in Christian political thought. And the, the dominant view, East, West, Catholic, Reformed, uh, for the majority of Christian history is basically providence puts all governments there from the tyrannical to the, the just. And the, the area of debate and speculation was trying to understand why, rationalize why God would permit or raise up a tyrant and the, the general view if i could summarize it was that god raised up evil rulers or permitted them there was a yeah. different difference of opinion there uh, throughout these periods god raised up tyrannical rule to either punish people who deserve punishment or to admonish and reform them yeah. that is that it was good for the the people now this is in a pre-scientific pre-social scientific era and and they were uh, trying to remain faithful to the, the scriptural uh, texts and trying to preserve both the sovereignty of God and the justness of God. And so they were trying to explain it away. Now, you think you contrast that, and this, this includes the reformers, you contrast that with the contemporary conservative Protestant, particularly evangelical and Pentecostal view on uh, vaccine mandates and lockdowns and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the chasm between this view and what I would argue is an is an a truly conservative view, where actually all authority comes from God, and your your duty is to dutifully submit, even if you are, are being oppressed. I mean, Calvin did have an exception if the ruler did something against religion. Religion here meaning really uh, Christianity. And the thing is that uh, when they spoke about freedom, and Luther talked a lot about Christian freedom, this was freedom from sin. This was the freedom that came through uh, the Christ event that freed you from your bonds to sin and allowed you to transform and reconcile with God. And again, how this conception of freedom came down to bodily autonomy, my ability to break laws and to ignore the authority of the, the state and the like. And, I, and again, I'm not saying, uh, my, my point is not that that's all wrong. I'm just noting that this is a massive transforma transformation. And these people are, will call themselves reformed. It is. I, I mean, during lockdown, I was, I was part of a very funny series of Zooms with friends I'm in a chat group with. And we all joked about how, you know, John Calvin would have locked up most of the people purporting to speak in his name now. Like, I mean, just, just he would be horrified by the idea that, you know, people would, people would in a time of crisis, because... I yeah. think um, Calvin, particularly, I think he had to deal with various plagues and so on. Yeah. I mean, the idea that you would, you, know, you would, yeah, you would do some of the, you would be advocating some things that people claiming to speak for his people. Um, These guys all thought that the the state 
had the authority to wield the sword, yes. which is to say execute <laughs> people. It was, but the thing is, it was like one of those things when you argue for this, this wasn't something that was like a, a narrow sect. It's like everyone believed this. Like no one, whatever else they disagreed on, everyone, yeah, Catholic, yeah. Protestant, Orthodox, everyone yeah, agrees. Yeah. This is the yeah, ruler's yeah. job is to protect the realm. Like no one. I mean, reformed political theology is effectively a version of Catholic political theology. That's yeah. one area where they didn't, the only reform was that the ruler could be the head of a different sort of a denomination. Wouldn't ha- would like the only thing that really changed was that the role of the the mm. pope. But they had a very similar conception of the authority of government and the role of divine providence and mm. and uh, and the kind of I mean every one of those societies looks yeah. looks. I, different. I, I always said I always said to Catholics I always said the biggest mistake Catholics made in the English speaking world was the gunpowder plot. I said there was no one who was more likely to give Catholics a good run than James the first. His mother was Mary Queen of Scots. He had a natural opposition to protestant reformers etc but still people had to be stupid about it yeah. he was a guy who really wanted to help you and they would try to blow him up and as i said very very silly don't go around doing that uh, but but it's but it's but it's a funny thing on you saying about political authority if i can just go back to that yeah throughout sort of normal christendom everything we've discussed was just accepted thought no one disagreed on this and so you have to try and search i think if you're being honest with when did this change? And I, I think a lot of it changes perhaps in the 60s to the 1980s in that period where sort of social liberalism and economic liberalism join hands. And I think that is a lot of it. So when we're talking about institutions and authority, we're also talking about institutions and authority that had major challenges to their authority in the last, say, 50, 60 years and have struggled to regain it because up to that point, no one disagreed on any of the things we've discussed. But from the 60s onwards, you have social and then economic liberalism joining hands and basically saying to people, you owe everyone else nothing. You owe them mm. nothing in terms of changes to your behavior and your conduct. You owe them nothing by way of helping them financially. You owe them nothing. You are your own, dare I say it? You're your own deity. Yeah, you're your own person. You know, you know, think about saying to someone a century ago, someone talking about phrases, well, I spoke my truth. People would look at you very strangely. They would say, no, did you speak the truth or did you give your opinion? No, no, no. I spoke my truth. Now, you and I might agree talking about my truth is nonsense, but it is a phrase that has entered into the argo of discussions in 2023 in a way that would be completely, completely bizarre to someone, even perhaps 50 years ago. But I'm saying in that, in that preceding 50 years from now, we have had that marriage of social and economic liberalism that has brought us to this point. And I think it's, to go back to your point about what is conservatism, it is a stupid as well as perishing conservatism that does not try to address both of those things on some scale. That economic liberalism and social liberalism basically became a, a singularity. They joined yeah. hands. And that's your real problem. Though That is your biggest problem, is that. That idea that you owe no one anything. You are your own deity. And 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 that's and that's your highest order is looking after that person. Yeah, I totally agree because the the fundamental idea that to me is at the heart of liberalism, which is why I could never be a liberal. Occasionally, people accuse me of being a liberalism because I have this subtle point about the liberal, the the basic liberal order in which uh, conservatism can thrive is because you have to be agnostic on moral and cultural questions and i'm not i believe in an objective moral order and unlike some conservatives i'll say (laughs) i'll take a stand on moral issues whereas the whole essence of a true liberal is the live and let be and they want everyone to uh 
to like you say be free to pursue their best you which is a kind of ertzat uh god but i mean just going back to the protestant thing the i, I suppose one one possible explanation of what's going on is that of course there was a radical reformation too which gets less attention these days and whilst i think a lot of the conservative christians that have have moved towards libertarianism and or populism i realize they're they're distinct but i can't disentangle that right now in this context they are generally in the the more reformed camp but i i think they're they're acting more in the spirit of the radical reformation which had a more anarchic conception of uh government partly because they they were brutally persecuted by the reformed <laughs> governments in in germany um and the like so i mean there is there is that tendency certainly on the protestant uh side of of the house and so maybe it's a move there but i think uh to your point i agree that i think there are deeper cultural shifts that come from secularism they i and i agree that they start emerging out of the the uh, 60s, I like this idea of the singularity of economic mm. and, and uh, social liberalism. And I and I think conservative Christians have imbibed uh, some of these cultural tendencies, which is not not hard to explain. We're all we're all creatures of the culture in which we we're born. I'm not immune from from mm. it either. But I but I suppose the thing that 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 uh, shocked me. Uh, going back to that shock point, is I was surprised by how deep secular culture had penetrated into conservative Christian circles in particular and how they were completely unaware that a lot of uh, what they a lot of the arguments offered sounded very libertarian and populist which is which like I say is a million miles from the tradition and what is more conservative than paying attention to, <laughs> to the tradition of your of your faith and political thought. And that's, that's the thing that's so bizarre is uh, to be called a liberal or a sellout because you are trying to stick to a longer and deeper tradition of conservative yes. thought and Christian political theology. You're, 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 trying to be, you're trying to be part Horatius, part trying to live and die in the faith of your ancestors, you know, that, yeah. that's, and, which I think is a noble thing. And, and yeah. I've, 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 I find it very, very strange to have gone through all of the last few years and come out of it with an almost it's 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 strange in the sense of and I agree with you that it's it's very lonely like it is a, it's a very lonely world to sort of inhabit which is why I think it's all the more important that you do inhabit it because someone's got to keep someone's got to keep the torch going but um, <laughs> but, but but I think it's, it's very very hard when you're from a, like an established kind of tradition which is conservatism certainly is uh, and, you know, you're from an established faith and you, you sort of look at people just sort of thinking, well, that's all that's all passe now because there is something in the immediacy which warrants junking it. And I've I've never I've never really understood it. And I think all I can say is I think the pandemics broke a lot of people. There's no other way of putting it. There's just I think it sent a lot of people mad and, and, and in a way. And I think it's very, very hard to sort of it's very, very hard to sort of believe. It's very hard to sort of believe that people who think that way were ever really that conservative in the first place. Which again comes back to that point. I mean, it just came to me when I was speaking to you about the singularity. That just came into my brain. But I thought mm. it is like a singularity where, from the sixties onwards, social liberalism, which is I can do whatever I want, and economic liberalism, 
and I don't have to pay for whatever you want. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it sort of sort of joins hands some, somewhere around the 80s and 90s and comes here to this point where we have no higher goals really than than leaving individuals alone. And the problem is we do live in that society where actually individuals can't all be left alone. In fact, they need you not to leave them alone. And so we need people to to be looked after and yeah. and and there are obviously uh, terrible social consequences if they're not. And a older political understanding understood that and and the the idea that the the government had to be able to do things for people and uh, you you see it I mean to give you a, a peculiar area of law for instance where you see this uh, the idea of the parents patriot jurisdiction which is the the, the father of the nation jurisdiction that the, the that the crown has in relation to vulnerable persons to step in and you know sort of look after them that is a that is a relic I guess of that uh, older medieval idea of the king as the kind of king or queen as the father or mother of the nation and the, the importance is that they're there to provide that protective role. But the reason why they're the parents' patriarch, like the parent of the nation, is because, again, to come back to what you said, that idea of family is the state really comes out of that idea of family and family relationships and and, and things that you are born into. And um, you know, it's very strange when people say, you know, I have these rights, you know, I never consented to this. Well, the regime under which you assert your rights, you didn't consent to because you weren't born in the, 18th, in the 18th and 19th century. So you didn't consent to that. You were just born into it. So hmm. it's an inheritance. It's like all inheritances has got to be used wisely. This is a very strange thing, Greg, is that a lot of people on the right and virtually everyone on at least the far far left, but it's easy to, you know, the left has its own fine-grained distinctions that we over often elide hmm. when we're talking about them from the perspective of the right as they do us. It's just an unavoidable hazard perhaps. But I think the, the whole political paradigm these days is living in the present and the the sort of lonely remnant which is what jonah goldberg the conservative journalist who started this famous podcast called the remnant when he uh, valiantly didn't go down the trump bandwagon because it was a sort of non-conservative term turn in in his view is this tiny remnant that of conservatives that ironically still looks to the past has a keen sense of tradition, legacy, inheritance. There's a word you don't hear very much in, in the sort of libertarian populist. I, I, I mean, they're uber modernists, yeah. almost postmodernists, focused on nothing but the present, just yeah. like their opponents on the left. Okay, if I can give you an example, and and um, if I can just give you an example, I think one of the reasons why I think a lot of it's got to do with also the decline of the family, and perhaps I yeah. have a different take on it. I had um, my parents passed away a, lot, a while ago, but. I was very close to my parents. They they had a huge impact upon me. Um, and as I'm speaking to you, I've got at least one of their portraits looking down on me. I mean, my, my late parents are very, very important to me. And my for me, my entire life, apart from I want to use my gifts, I want to do the very best I can in life and work hard and hopefully leave something behind me. But I also like to think my parents are looking down and hopefully they're proud of me. That's a very big thing for me. And and. It's why I really don't care what anyone else thinks when I say something. Someone criticizes me. I don't really care. I said my parents love me, etc., and hopefully they're proud of me. And that's that's something that's very, very big for me. And I think if you don't have, say, that sense of family, and I and I feel very sorry for people who don't, if you don't have that sense of family, perhaps those things don't matter as much to you. Because I think mm. we are, as you say, we are creatures of that environment. You know, you you live in a society where it's very, often a very secular or you know, godless society. In some respects, an anarchic society. If you grow up and that's all you know, odds are that's going to be the values you internalize. You know, if you had parents who instilled different values into you, or you had like a schooling education that imparted different values to you or built on values your parents gave you, then you will see the world differently and that would be different. But 
insofar as you're right, people on the right don't use terms like inheritance and things like that in that sense. You know, people's idea of inheritance is, well, mum and dad are gone, I get the home. Yeah. yeah. How, how good is that? Um, materialistic. Yeah, it's materialistic inheritance. But if that idea of inheritance as a, as a transmission of values and ideas, that's, that's how I sort of use it. And I, I've used it in my writings in the sense of you don't discard your precious inheritance. You don't. You, you look after it and, mm. um, and, you know, and you build on it. And it's that idea of whoever said it, that you know, tradition is not the worship of ashes, it's the preservation of fire. That's something that you want to hold on to and mm. you want to hold on to dearly. Um, I, do, I do think at the same time, one of the reasons why you do have populist uprisings, and they're common now across the Western world, and they'll be populist on left and right. So you know, Bernie Sanders is a, in America mm. or Jeremy Corbyn in Britain. They're kind of leftist populists, they're, but they're still populists. They're not people mm. who have any stake in the current system. Um, they occur because whatever passes for an establishment is not addressing sufficient people's needs. And I do think a healthy conservatism is also preserving multiple things, one of which is attending to those, I guess, those important parts of just addressing people's day-to-day needs. It's, it's why I, to re, to re, to reinforce this point, or as is my want to re-bomb this target, uh, housing is something I just go on and on about. If, if people do not feel they have some stake, some security in society, they feel they owe no loyalty to it. And I kind of understand that. I mean, I've, I've no cloth cap background to talk about. I've no working class era background to talk about, et cetera. But if it was me and I was in that position, I would be very skeptical of what I owe a society, which I'm effectively locked out from. And so I think mm. it's very important if you're a conservative, again, to come back to where we started about being open to be able to change, change things that need changing. You have to have a system whereby more and more people always feel part of the team. And I think it's a very, very important part of a vigorous conservatism that is always conserving. You know, if you're for, for reform, what is reformed? What do reformed Protestants say? The reformed church is always reforming. Yeah. If you're a conservative, yeah, yeah. you should always be conserving. And conserving should be vigorous. It should be something you're always trying to do. And I think the current crisis at the moment is going to be a crisis about, is going to be about like housing. And that's a particular crisis at the moment. Other times the crisis is about conserving civic peace. So you need to have strong policies on law and order and the like. You know, there are other times you're conserving other things. But at the moment, it seems, I think housing is just something we have a massive problem with, this, particularly in this country. And it's not something that's going to be solved overnight either, but it is something that people have to know you care and that you are wanting to do something about it. Hmm. And, and uh, I, that, that uh, yeah, it's, it just strikes me as very, very strange when you know, there are so many other esoteric issues that that's just not front and center. You know, yeah. I'm not in politics, but if I was, it would be all I talk about every day would be housing. I mean, I just think it's such an important part of making everyone feel part of the team is that they have some place to call their own and some part of Australia that is theirs. And and I think you have other things that are built upon that. People build families and permanent lives and, and they have rootedness, which I think is a very good thing. Um, and so I think that's just much easier. I think the sort of uh, ultimate ultra-cosmopolitan mobile societies in some respects are a contradiction in terms. I think it's very hard to have a society without some sort of fixtures in place. Yeah. And so I think you need as much as possible to help people to to conserve their little world and, and, and make them feel secure in it. And I think that's a very important part of conservatism as well, is helping people feel secure and feel part of the team. And so, so yeah, it's, it's not a... And that sometimes... And that will require you to use the state to achieve those goals. Yeah, yeah, that's really the point, isn't it? I think 
from my perspective, conservatism, if it's going to be effective, has to be strongly grounded in a realist perspective. But it, there's always the temptation to be excessively idealistic. And so it's all well and good to preach the virtues of the family, man and wife, lifelong marriage, kids, loving environment. I mean, that we have to have ideals in society and sometimes the ideal is more or less realized, but you have to deal with the reality of the world and of people as you find them. And not everyone has is fortunate enough to grow up in that family. And so if all you've got, all you can do is preach the ideal, but not deal no, <laughs> with no, those who are unfortunate enough to reach the ideal. Yeah. You have to have policies for yeah. those people. You, you do, but you also have to have for people like me. I mean, I, I said to you, I, I, I don't have that kind of thing, but for someone like me, I spend, and I, I'm not a particular, you know, not a wonderful person, etc. I'm not a saint or anything, but whenever someone comes to me for help, I always try and give them help. Particularly, I, I used to, I used to lecture, um, I still lecture at universities and law schools. I often have people come to me for advice who don't have any in it on something and want to understand how things work. I'll always give people time. I'll always try and help them because I think that's an obligation I have. You know, I, I have an obligation to help people who perhaps didn't have it in or didn't have an understanding of how the system worked to try and understand how it actually does work and how you can find your way in it because it's open. You've just got to find out what, what door you've got to pull open to get it open, but it is open. It's not, it's a, it's not some sort of ridiculous Marxist heresy where all the doors are closed to you. It's not, the doors are open. You just got to find out which doors to go through. But a lot of people, for instance, don't have someone in their life um, who can sort of help them along that way. I mean, and if you ever deal with people, particularly, um, you know, you have like you know, younger people who grew up in families that are broken or whatever. They don't have anyone. They come to you and literally you kind of, you're quite shocked at how unprepared they are for the world, but also you feel sorry for them. You feel, and I know I don't want to sound rude or pitying, but you do feel sorry for them because they're not ready for what's coming at them. And you realize actually how blessed you were that you had someone to help you and mm. you want to, you want to help them in some respects. Again, this is the kind of communitarian aspect. You've got to help people. And, you know, not everyone is going to be hundred percent ready to go and able to survive in society like you can. I mean, I can. I, I, always say to, I always find it very interesting whenever people want to sort of remove a lot of the guardrails of society. Because I always say, look, I'll survive in that society. I'm, I, I will back myself. I think I'll survive pretty well in this kind of Thunderdome society you want. I'm not sure you will. And I'm pretty sure most of your friends won't. So I don't understand why you're doing this because you are really going to reap what you are sowing at the moment. And, yeah. and it's something I just, I just don't understand. So you're right about we can be idealistic about things like the family and things like that, but they are natural. They are natural needed institutions that you know, we need because they're, they're transmissions of values and transmissions of understandings and the like. And it's, it's very, very important that if people don't have that, they have some other way of accessing that. And it's very important, yeah. for instance, for people who do say what I do and do what you do, to, to make ourselves available for people who don't and who, who don't. It, and again, it comes back to this point about when I said to you, uh, people who are on the right who don't go on like the ABC or don't go and do things. Do You have an obligation to go on and do things. Like you, if you have a certain position in society, you have certain advantages of knowledge and like, you actually have a duty to go and do it. You may not like it. You may not be paid for it. It may be something of a, of a burden, but you still have a duty to do it. And I think that is something that I've, I've guess I've found very, very strange is that I think uh, if I can, if I can shorthand what we were saying about the marriage of social liberalism and economic liberalism, it's that a culture of duty was lost and a culture of rights was born is what happened. And I think 
the right will start to get its bearings back when it is talking more about people's duties and less about people's rights. I completely agree. I think that's really superb and probably a good point to to finish. Uh, I would I would just add that uh, not only would it be good if we could recapture the concept of duty, but conservatives need to live it and, like you say, embody duty by serving others for the common good. And that's not going to happen uh, if your dominant mindset becomes libertarian and it's about you and your freedom from the coercive and oppressive forces of the state and left-wing cultural tyrants and 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 others. You're you're going to turn your back on society and you're going to look inwardly. It's a kind of Rod Dreher mm. Benedict option model where you withdraw from society and you cocoon yourself. That's great, but then don't expect anyone to know what conservatism is mm. or to correct or have role models if you don't engage society and decide to serve it in all of its brokenness and error. And that is kind of a Christian idea. Yeah, you're a missionary, not a hermit. I mean, that's 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 a that's a very that's a very frank thing that you have. It's not that it's not that the life of solitude, etc., is not valuable, but fundamentally, it has to be missional to 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 achieve things. And uh, I, I just think the right will not improve its position until it speaks more about duties than it does about rights. And duties are incumbent on everyone. Yeah, you know, the one inescapable thing. And you know, we've recently been through the loss of the late queen and the coronation of the new king. Why was the late queen so revered by so many people? She just did her duty yeah. every day. No complaining, no whining. She went she went through a lot of suffering, I think, you know, with her family and problems in her family and so on. And and she still just kept on she just kept on going and she persevered. And I think uh, if there's something that I've written about, and certainly something I've I can say from life experience is the most important virtue, and that is perseverance. I think perseverance, like duty, is those unfashionable those unfashionable virtues that people on the right need to make more fashionable. The idea that we persevere in difficulties and that we just keep going and we do our duty and and that these are things that we just keep going until the very end. And and that's just something that's not true for your politics, it's true for your life, that your life will have battles in it and you'll just have to persevere and push through them. And that's, that is something that is just part and parcel of our life here. And that's just something that we have to accept and do our very best with. Great. I think that's a perfect note to finish uh, quite a wide-ranging and uh, meandering conversation, but that's the kind of conversations I personally like and I trust the listeners that made it this far do too. So thanks so much for your time and for a great conversation. Thank you very much for having me on and I very much enjoyed my time on The Political Analyst. Thank you. Thank you. Well, folks, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to follow uh you could give a five-star rating on apple and or spotify if you are so inclined thanks to my producer angelo groza and i'll catch you next time